Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Adventure Science Podcast. This week, we are very excited to be interviewing one of climate science's greatest researchers currently. Her name is Dr. Maureen Ramo. She is a personal friend of ours. She goes way back with Chanel. Chanel, she's one of your favorite people. Why? Why do you love her so much? Well, most very high up on my list of personal heroes, um, I was getting my MPA in environmental science and policy at Columbia uh, that has classes in SIPA, which is the School of International and Public Affairs, and the Earth Institute. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have Mo as a professor, but I did see her speak about global sea level rise at Columbia's Lamont Doherty Earth Institute, and her talk really had an impact on me. How, how so? What, uh, what really moved you about what she was speaking on? Well, I mean, I think just just her as a person, um, really, she impacted me. She's a, a leader in uh, global sea level rise, and that's what her talk was on, which I'm obviously really interested in. So, Okay. Well, I mean, Mo, I'm not sure if uh, people are familiar with uh, who she is. A lot of scientists just kind of operate, you know, in the shadows. But, you know, the, the work that they do is just so important for policy and so much more. But, I mean, she's got a list of accolades that's longer than my arm, including she was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which only happens for the best and brightest researchers. She's been included in Discover Magazine's 50 Most Important Women in Science, and she's taught at some of the most prestigious uh, universities across the United States, including University of California, Berkeley campus, MIT, Boston University, and most recently, she's a distinguished professor at the Lamont Doherty Earth Institute, which is part of Columbia University in New York. So right. what, do you, what do you say we uh, just jump into it and get Mo on this call and uh, get some of her awesome stories and antidotes? Sounds good. Mo, thanks so much for agreeing to, uh, to join us this morning on Mother's Day, no less. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I know that Chanel's extremely excited to have you on the show, as am I, but she's got a, a much longer connection with you as uh, she was an audience member years ago and, you know, it had a profound impact, uh, one of your lectures did. So let's, let's jump into where this zest for exploration and research and adventure started. I mean, you've told me in the past that it started at a very young age for you. How, what's yeah. the backstory? Yes, it did. I mean, I... I, I I was a child in the 60s and Jacques Cousteau was, you know, just coming into his own then and making television shows about his exploring the undersea world and writing books. And I was, you know, I don't know. I had a connection to the ocean. I can't explain. I didn't live on the ocean. I just loved it. Um, and when Jacques Cousteau walked on the scene, that was it. That was what I wanted to do with my life, be an oceanographer. Now, you'd also shared uh, an image with us, uh, a drawing of, you know, presumably you standing in a submarine near a porthole looking out at a giant uh, octopus eye or squid eye. What's, what's the backstory to that? <laughs> yeah, so when we were eight, I had two brothers. I had a brother and a sister, and every week my dad, we each had our own little sketchbook, and every week my dad would draw a picture in our sketchbook, and it was some un ongoing adventure. Like my brother had adventures with Tintin, but my adventures oh. <laughs> were my adventures were uh, exploring the ocean with Jacques Cousteau, 
And, um, and I, I treasure that little notebook, but that's one of my favorite pictures because I'm looking out at this scary eyeball at the porthole and it says, um, I see a terrifying sight at the porthole, but for the sake of science, I must go out and investigate. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like my dad really captured my need for, for adventure in the, in that. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, what I find interesting about that is how important a role parents have. And, I, you know, presumably uh, educators as well in the early years um, when kids are starting to get ideas about what they may want to do uh, as they, they grow up. What, what's a potential career even? And with myself, I know with Chanel for sure, her father's been a major influence um, in her life. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just helps us get out there. I mean, Chanel, what what experiences did you have at an early age with um, with your dad that might be similar to most? Well, I mean, I, my earliest memories. So I grew up um, on the east coast of South Florida in a little town called Jupiter and uh, Juno Beach. And my dad, my earliest memories, he would just throw me on his back. I mean, I must have been like four years old and take me snorkeling with him so I mean I was in the water from you know the time I was a toddler you know to now I mean I still love free diving um but yeah I mean just having that influence at an early age I think really obviously you know impacted me and would help form who I would become and probably has a lot to do with my love for the outdoors and Mo, did did your father take you out as well? I mean, did you experience uh, the outdoors and eventually the ocean with him first, or was that an initiative that you just kind of grabbed and ran with? No, definitely. I mean, we grew up outdoors, playing outdoors, hiking through the woods, climbing mountains, all of that. Where where did uh, you grow up? Uh, New England, okay. New England. Um, you know, by the you know, I by the time I was I don't know a tween, I guess I was. Just, begging my parents to <laughs> to add more weeks to my camps every summer. It's like, please, can I go for another week? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They probably, I, that's an ideal child, right? Please, mom, I want to go for six weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was good. And then by, I think by the time I was 16, I was working for the Appalachian Mountain Club up in the White Mountains. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, coming back to this idea of parents, I mean, don't hold your kids back. Kids do anything they want. So yeah. I love it when I find out I've inspired somebody to do something like that. Well, that's, I mean, that's such a gift, right? It's its not only the giving. It's always, the more you give, the more you get back with virtually anything in life. And it, it seems to be the, the case there. It must have been so rewarding for your parents, maybe your father in particular, to see your love just grow year over year. Now, Chanel and I were talking before about um, women in science and, you know, STEM in particular, right? Mm -hmm. Science, technology, engineering, math, and how it's such a major focus for, in Canada and in the United States for legislators and educators trying to bring more women into the sciences. And, you know, as somebody leading in that area, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are, where we're going with it, and what else can be done. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, you know, 
I'm glad, really glad to see that emphasis. I'm really glad uh, to know so many amazing women science and educators who realize how important it is to get out there in front of kids and let them see, yes, this is what a scientist can look like, and boy, our life is fun and exciting, that kind of thing. Um, because, you know, kids and, and sometimes even just the cultures they're grown in don't, don't really um, give girls that message that they can do that often. So, you know, I know myself, you know, it was, you know, I was just able to ignore all those kind of messages that I shouldn't be smart in math and all that stuff. But, you know, not every kid can do that. So I think it's great. I think it's really great. I think it's great. We have hundreds of school kids that come to Lamont to visit us in our lab. It's just really a good thing that there's so many groups reaching out and promoting these careers to girls, especially. What would you tell a young girl that's interested in climate change or is curious about a career in research or science? I mean, it's an area that I think has a lot of misplaced and kind of tragic political pressure right now. Um, so what would you tell you know, a young girl that's, that's interested in the fields you work in? Yeah, well, I, you know, I would say, what aspect of the world are you interested in? I mean, you know, I know gals that fly in airplanes through hurricanes to study hurricanes. I obviously know lots of oceanographers that go out to sea and lead expeditions. I know gals that go on the polar ice caps. And, um, you know, the thing that's cool about science is you can just pick something that fascinates you and, and, with a relatively little effort, you know, let's say five years at grad school, you can become a <laughs> one person's well, little effort is another yeah. another's five year of hell, perhaps. But uh, sure. <laughs> oh, I think of I think of grad school. I think of it was like the six best years of my life. I mean, it's oh, just yeah. you love doing and you're passionate about it, and you're you you are you're becoming one of the experts in the world at something. Now, granted, it could be very narrow and esoteric, but you know, it could be something as simple as earthquakes from ice sheets or. Uh, you know, how the ice ages happened. And these are just simple, you know, I mean, these are fun questions to ask. And study. Yeah. That's so funny. I was telling Simon the other day, the only mistake I made uh, with grad school was that I chose a one-year program and it was over way too fast. I wish it was, you know, two or three years. Oh, Chanel, you can go back and get your PhD. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the list. <laughs> Yeah, and you no, know, you do raise a, a good point, Mo. I mean, I was just being a little facetious there, but to look back on grad school and, and just reminisce on the freedom. Uh, I yeah. mean, first of all, we all seem to learn how to live on uh, meager salary and, and rations, and it's fine. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's just pure freedom. It's It's almost like... I mean, you said you were a 60s child, just like being a hippie, right? You don't need much. All you need is uh, research and books and uh, a few travel grants, and you're good to go. Um, yeah, it was That's such a such true. a good time. Yeah, especially, you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't need a lot. In fact, stuff just weighs you down. But yeah. you said a word that's really key there, and I think it's it's key to the entire career of being a scientist, which is freedom. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for many scientists, especially in academia and various places, even even less so in government now, you have the freedom to really pursue things that you think are important, that you think are interesting. 
And I wouldn't trade that for the world. I can certainly appreciate that. I, I've made a lot of moves in my life um, to try and gain more freedom with what I do. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a major calling for many of us. You know, so what you've said there kind of leads me into my next question, which is basically, how does your desire to explore fit into your life? I mean, it fits with science. The two, in some respects, are almost oh, synonymous. Yeah. But Well, you know, I'm a neuroscientist, scientist, and, and it's really hard to find a neuroscientist scientist that didn't grow up in love with the outdoors. You know, it's kind of like a calling that follows naturally upon a desire to be outside and mm -hmm. climb and, you know, snorkel and do all these things we love to do. So, you know, I, it's there. And then you get into the science and you direct your, you know, you direct your research towards areas where, you know, you can study the geology of some remote mountain range somewhere, or in my case, go out to sea and do research in the ocean. So, you know, I mean, that, I love the earth sciences. I mean, they're just amazing. Your job is to study the earth. How great is that? That's pretty great. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, that's obviously what I did my uh, grad schooling in for master's and PhD. And, you know, it's, it's had such a broad applicability to what I do and, you know, where I've taken my life mm -hmm. with, with our group Adventure Science. And we're going to talk about Think Like a Mountain as well, which, uh, well, Chanel, you, you know, you might want to talk about it right now. This is a great uh, opportunity. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I'm so thankful that you're involved with Think Like a Mountain. I mean, I feel lucky to even be talking to you. Um, but so uh, Think Like a Mountain is a little 501c nonprofit that we started that focuses on conservation, uh, science, and exploration. So we're working on a few projects together that we're really excited about. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's many elements in our lives that, you know, bring us all together. And even though I'm not a practicing geologist anymore, I mean, I used to work for a subsidiary of ExxonMobil, so it doesn't get any bigger than that in terms of uh, petroleum exploration. But left that to, you know, do adventure science, do the television show Boundless, and geology has always helped me. I mean, I'm able to go into an environment and just get a general understanding of what I'm going to experience by understanding the general geology of the area. And, you know, I'm a stratigrapher, so looking at sedimentary rocks really helps me figure things out. And if I have to navigate through that terrain, um, I, I just have a better sense of what the terrain is going to present in terms of kind of topographic features, erosion, or whatever else, uh, to help make my way through it safely and, you know, hopefully efficiently. Yeah. Well, no, I want to speak a little bit about what you're researching, uh, because it's obviously very important. Can you talk about what is going on in the climate right now? I mean, I know we don't have uh, the time to really dive in, but do you think the most important thing you know, if there was something you you could talk about, the important thing about what you're researching that you want people to know. Right. So, I mean, I study climate change and um, it's something I've done for 30 years. And I've witnessed uh, the world getting warmer, uh, the Arctic ice sheet, uh, the Arctic sea ice cover shrinking, uh, the ice shrinking. And it's happening. It's real. 
and um, and the sea, sea level is rising, and the rate at which sea level is rising has been accelerating over the past few decades. And um, this is a you know this is a real problem that will only be solved by decarbonizing the global economy. And um, there are many com- countries that, that are ahead of us. Oh, well, many, almost all countries are ahead of us in recognizing this. But, um, and, uh, you know, I can tell you specifically what aspect of this I study now. I study sea level and try to understand if global climate warms by two degrees Celsius. And again, this is a global average. So some places warming by a huge amount, like the polar region. Right. Um, and uh, trying to understand how much the polar ice sheets will melt in, in that scenario. And we can do that by looking to the past, looking at times in the past that have been naturally warmer than today. But, um, but just to bring it back for a minute to you know, what I would want people to know, there's so many creative solutions and adaptations and mitigations going on around the world right now. There's no reason. I mean, Costa Rica is 98% renewable energy right now, and their goal is to be 100% renewable in four years. And their whole cities are having this goal. Uh, there's villages. I mean, this is something people can do. At the tech, the technologies there, the mechanisms are there. What we don't have is the political will in our nation to deal with this problem. And uh, people can make that happen, people that care about the future of the planet for their children, as I do, and, you know, I assume many other mothers do. On this Mother's Day, (laughs) if you want to do something for your kids, educate yourself about the climate change problem. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I completely agree with everything you just said. I know you participated in the Science March a few weeks back. And uh, one of the reasons we created Think Like a Mountain was to help scientists broaden their reach to the public, um, which I think is, you know, increasingly important. How um, important do you think this is? And how do you think scientists can better reach a wider audience in this modern world uh, we're living in that's full of distractions and misinformation and, you know, Duck Dynasty TV shows? Oh, Lordy. Yeah, well... Um, you, you guys are doing an awesome job. I mean, it's it's committed people. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I I don't know. I mean, I, the thing that makes me uh, have a lot of hope is that I feel that people are really curious about this, and I see more and more people, uh, just regular people, you know, making changes in their life to to try to become more sustainable and live more sustainably on our planet. Um, you know, we don't have infinite resources, so we've got to respect the planet. Yeah, I think we both uh, agree there. So I've got a question uh, about what keeps you excited with your research. And, you know, having gone through it, not nearly as long as you, but you see a lot of researchers actually get burnt out. And I had advice from my uh, supervisor years ago that was every seven years, change your focus to something else. What still keeps you excited day after day to keep getting uh, after this? That is such good advice. And cause I would have said the same thing. You've got to just constantly be like looking for new challenges and new questions and just, you know, don't let yourself get in that little narrow rut. 
for an entire career. And uh, so in my case, about um, back in the around probably 2008, 2007, um, a lot of people were asking me if I knew anything about sea level in the in the Pliocene, which is a time period when atmospheric CO2 was the same as today, 400 parts per million. And they wanted to know how much ice sheet melted at that time, how much the ice sheets melted then. And I realized I didn't really know uh, the answer to that and was not very convinced by the scientific papers I was reading on that topic. So I started, uh, you know, studying sea level and uh, partnered with some pretty um, amazing scientists who, you know, had skills that I didn't have that were complementary to the skills I had and uh, have built, built a large sea level research group basically in the, in the 10 years since. And uh, it's been incredibly exciting. I feel like I've been learning new stuff, you know, every month. And um, so, you know, again, coming back to your question, it's just, you know, always find, don't be afraid to, uh, you know, take chances and go in new directions. And, you know, I, I, I have this lovely um, quote uh, that was from a mathematician. Someone asked him what it was like to be, to be a, basically an advanced mathematician, but it's applicable to all scientists, which is if you're not constantly in a state of confusion, you're not really, you know, investigating something. Or <laughs> <laughs> a paraphrase of the quote, but basically, you know, I believe that. Like, if, if you know everything about what you're looking at, it's like time to move on. You know, you should right. be looking at something where, it, you know, every day you go into work and you're scratching your head about something, <laughs> figure something out. Well, that, that's so true. Science is about curiosity and observation, right? I mean, I think you can distill it down to that. And then the rest of the game is just how do you, how do you deal with your curiosity and what, do your, what are your inter interpretations on your observations, right? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, oh, sorry, go on, Chanel. Oh, I was just going to ask, you know, I mean, we've heard so many wonderful things about what you do. And I was wondering... What are some of the challenges that you face? And I, I'm wondering about, you know, if you've had a bad research trip or or something that's been a little bit more difficult that you've dealt with. Oh, yeah. War stories. I love these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't even know if we want to go there. I, I would prefer <laughs> not to, actually. But I don't think you can find any woman scientist uh, in their 50s or 60s that doesn't have uh, a chest of those stories. So I don't like to dwell on them. Um, I've had my share along with, you know, like I said, other women of my generation. Yeah. What about what about challenges in the field, perhaps some physical challenges, equipment challenges? I remember when we used to, um, so my field site was in Oman, and we worked a lagoon, an intertidal lagoon there, and you never knew in your one-month field season, how long you'd be delayed at startup while you're waiting for your trimble or your coring equipment or whatever to arrive because it, we used to have to ship it separately. We couldn't fly it with the airline, so those crates would go out weeks in advance, and you just crossed your fingers. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I've been pretty lucky. I think the worst kind of expedition fail I ever had was a cruise in the North Atlantic on a drill ship and um, ODP or uh... it, it was ODP, right? I was okay. coaching with a uh, with a scientist from um, Norway, and uh, 
they usually, you know, they ship the ship out from port with all the core liners, core tubes right. that you'll, and they just had no idea how ambitious we were planning to be. And we actually ran out of core liner halfway through the cruise and had to like lay up for a couple of days while a ship came out from Iceland with more core liner. Wow. That was probably the, the, the wow. But other than that, it's just, you know, I mean, you know this. What's fun about being out in the field is you're constantly just being presented with logistical challenges and this and that. Um, my, again, is part of the so many things I'm grateful for. I am grateful that nobody's ever been hurt badly in an expedition I've ever been on. Keyword badly. I, you, know, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, people have gotten, like, bitten by iguanas and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> But especially because I take a lot of students out, and that's a huge responsibility. And yes. uh, I always like to lie awake at night worrying about things like that. So it's all been good. Knock on wood. Well, that's that's good to hear. So, I mean, you've had so many expeditions and been in the field so much through your career. Are there any really memorable ones that maybe produce some eureka moment Data. I know some of your early work focused on, I believe it was isostatic rebound, and um, you had mentioned the Pliocene uh, temperatures and carbon dioxide concentrations, and I believe there was some strontium isotope work that you did initially. I mean, how, how have your thoughts on all of that changed and morphed through the years? Because I guess what I'm getting at here is we go out gung-ho, and early in our careers, you know, the goal is make a name for yourself, do something impactful so that you can get grants and become a full professor and then have the true freedom. But, you know, I, I think enlightened people have to be flexible in their viewpoints. And, you know, you can't just pound the table all day long for your entire career. You have to adapt and, and really respect what the data is showing you. So that's, that's the umbrella over my, my question on the Eureka moment. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that I, I mean, I can think of two big Eureka moments I've had, and neither were in the field. <laughs> <laughs> One was watching a graduate student give a talk at a big meeting, a graduate student in another field, and, and that led to an Eureka moment because I realized something about her data that would be really awesome if it was put together with my data. And the other Eureka moment was, you'll, you'll laugh about this, it was watching March of the Penguins the movie <laughs> so, you're right i'm I think laughing think something about polar ice caps that had never occurred to me before but in terms of being out in the field the just epic moments of beauty that just make you kind of like slowly put all the pieces of a problem together they happen all the time and um I, I mean, and I, I, if I had to think of the most beautiful moment I ever had, it would be when I was on the um, top of the Tibetan plateau and just looking up and realizing just how many stars there were because there was so little atmosphere between me and and the sky and the universe. And it was just just really moving experience. Sounds wow. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, what you were saying there kind of raised a question for me in that you know you, you've got to get out to experience these things but you know the eureka moments don't happen when you're pouring over data in the lab uh no, you know or, or trying 
trying to force it. It's you mentioned, you know, when you're in the field and you, you have those moments to have it all come together or you're sitting in a conference and you hear somebody talk and it's just like, wow, okay, all right, there's that puzzle piece that I can bring in. And I think applicability for science, but also our, our larger life in general, I see two things coming out of it. One, it takes time. You can't force these things. And two, realizing that you can't force these things, you just have to go through the process and be a little bit patient and almost trust that if you continue on that path, good things or these pieces of information or jigsaw pieces are going to appear. Yeah, I would I would add to that. I think sometimes you just need to make space in your mind for kind of quietness and peace. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in people going on vacation. Take an hour and go for a hike at, at lunchtime or walk in the woods or wherever you are. And I, I really think that carving out like those periods in your day, which is actually hard to do, oh, yeah. um, but it's yeah. really important. It, it, it makes space for, in your mind for those those thoughts. Yeah. I have a I have a question that I ask all all of our interviewees, and it's: Do you have a mantra? Oh yeah, um, I do actually. Um, it's, uh, create your perfect day. So I, you know, I just try to think about that every day when I wake up, like, how am I going to make this day a great day? And it could be work. It could be play. It could be whatever. It could be interactions with people, but you know, I try to just think very much about my day. I like that. That's, uh, that's great. So does that take you to more of a meditative moment where, you know, you spend the first minute or two of the day just soaking it in or you spring out of bed and just charge forward with that as your <laughs> mantra it's the it's the former it's more like you know i just think about you know how am i going to make this day a great day for me and for you know the people around me and um yeah so it's more meditative and, and, and obviously great gratefulness is in there as well you know just i mean we're very lucky i feel very lucky all the time um very grateful for the opportunities and friendships and family that I have. So, yeah. <laughs> I like that mantra. Chanel, do you yeah. have uh, some more questions about climate? I've got a few, but if you wanted to ask no, yours. Go, go for it. Okay. Mo, so I'm I'm interested in knowing just some of the, uh, the basics about essentially carbon in the atmosphere and, you know, what's going on now versus what's gone on in the past. So, when I was when I was going through school, there was quite a bit of debate about Milankovitch cycling and solar flares and things like that. And then, hey, you know, we've had pa periods in our past where the continents have been amalgamated and there were no polar ice caps. And, right. you know, so we're no different now than what we were like in the Cretaceous or perhaps in the Pliocene when you said the um, the carbon content was at 400, uh, was it parts per million, right? Yep. So that's, that's a really great comment, and, and, and I can see where you're going here. Um, the, the Earth's climate changes all the time, um, naturally. And what's really important for people to recognize is it changes on different timescales. It can change on timescales of hundreds of millions of years due to plate tectonic processes, you know, changes in 
the amount of volcanism from the Earth's interior. And on shorter timescales of tens of thousands of years, the climate changes dramatically between ice ages and periods like today when it's warmer, um, just due to changes in our orbit around the sun. So we have these long, slow orbital variations around the sun, and sometimes we're a little further from the sun and we plunged into an ice age, and sometimes we're a little closer, like today, and it's warmer. And what was pretty cool was back in the 70s, this people finally understood this and, and were able to prove that the ice ages were caused by these subtle variations in Earth's orbit around the sun. And when they looked at that, they realized, wow, we're going into an ice age. So, so over the next 10,000 years, the Earth would have become progressively cooler. Um, and, um, and so that was people were saying, wow, we're kind of heading towards an ice age. But then, of course, what happened is humans also recognized um, that the CO2 being put into the atmosphere was causing the planet to warm. And in fact, there are scientists who've written papers that have said that the CO2 increase due to humans has already, uh, you know, like prevented us from entering uh, the neoglacial period going into an ice age. So, and I, and I think though, I think those arguments are very compelling, but certainly what we're doing, um, you couldn't say that the warming that's happening now is natural due to these orbital variations because they're going in the wrong direction. And then one other thing is, is, you know, people say, well, don't volcanoes go to into the atmosphere and they do. And that is how climate changes naturally on super long time scales. But we're putting CO2 into the atmosphere at a rate that's about an order of magnitude higher than volcanoes. So we're just swamping the natural carbon cycle right now with all this carbon that we've you know, dug out of the Earth's deep interior and put up here in the surface where it doesn't want to be. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So I guess, I mean, as a paleontologist, I'm always interested in what was the situation with the dinosaurs versus what's happening now? Um, you know, the, the KT extinction is still heavily debated. Um, but one of the thoughts was that there was a period of climate cooling coming at the end of the Cretaceous in addition to uh, some serious plate tectonic activity that led to their demise. Now, the climate then was extremely warm and the climate now is warming. So as a paleoclimatologist, what are your thoughts on, you know, being able to look back in time and how far can we look back in time to understand the differences and, you know, match, um, I guess, data because ice core data only takes us back so far. Right. So ice core data goes back about 800,000 years. And, um, you know, sci scientists are actively developing proxy methods to study CO2 further back in time. The, the extinction of the dinosaurs is just a fascinating topic that's been debated for decades. Yeah. The evidence that an asteroid hit at the moment of the dinosaurs went extinct is very, very strong. Um, whether the population had been weakened coming up to that point by changing climate, you know, people debate that. Um, but, but clearly that, that was a fairly, well, fairly, that was a catastrophic <laughs> <event>. <laughs> Put the brakes on the planet for a millisecond or two, didn't it? 
it worked out for us, the mammals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you know, it led to the age of the mammals. So got to, we got we got to be thankful for that, I suppose. Yes. Well, I I know this isn't your area of expertise, but uh, there is a growing uh, voice in the scientific community who are saying, you know, we are in the, uh, I believe it's the sixth mass extinction right now, and it's the uh, it's the man, uh, the human caused uh, extinction period now, and uh, that's got got to have significant uh, ties with climate as well. What are your thoughts there? Yes, that's true. So, I mean, a lot of those extinctions are just due to anthropogenic development, you know, just destruction of ecosystems. Um, but also more and more of it's going to be due to changing climate zones and climate patterns that, you know, if you have a little bit counts on feeding a little bug to its little baby birds and all of a sudden the spring's coming three weeks earlier, and that bug's, you know, gone by the time the bird arrives from the south. You know, that that would lead, that could lead to a cascading chain of effects where that little ecosystem starts to fail. So a lot of, you know, there are a lot of scientists out there. Like I said, this isn't really my thing, but there's a lot of scientists out there studying these interdependencies within the ecosystems that are that are being disrupted as, as climate changes gradually. That, well, <laughs> climate's changing gradually on a human time scale, like over the lifetime of the human. But, of right. course, this is incredibly rapid change when you think about an evolutionary time scale. So that, that is why, you know, there's this increase. You know, the, that's why they call it the sixth great extinction. Yeah, it, it is that uh, challenge for humanity to understand that. You know, climate is not in a 70, 80, 90 year process. It's a hundreds of million year process. And we just, our brains can't comprehend that really. I mean, I think I have a little bit of a greater understanding than most thanks to being a geoscientist. I mean, we work, as you know, in very long time scales. So you understand that uh, continents that are creeping along at millimeters or centimeters per year or inches, uh, it doesn't seem like much mm. year over year, but you give it right. enough time and they're going to cross oceans. That's right. Yeah. So, Mo, what do you think the most important thing about your research is at the moment that people should know? Great question. So I think the, I think the really key thing I'd like people to appreciate is that when we look at the geologic history of polar ice sheets, we can see that when they cross a stability threshold, they can start melting really rapidly. And when I mean say rapidly, I mean by meters per century. So um, this is something we should all be really worried about, like do, that the poles don't, you know, cross this tipping point and all of a sudden you see the West Antarctic ice sheet collapsing and sea level rising by two meters per century. So that, you know, there would be hundreds of millions of people around the world that would basically have to migrate, they would become climate refugees out of the coastal zone um, if that happened. So sea level, you know, this is something very hard to walk back. If sea level rises, you can't really like scoop up that water and put it back in an ice sheet. And uh, people need to take this threat seriously. And um, not only that, it's not, it's not a hopeless 
scenario, there's easily things we can do to to slow the rate of global warming. So I, I just want people to think about that. No, I think the interesting thing about this topic is that um, it impacts all life on Earth. So, I mean, I really don't think there's a, a more important topic uh, that people should be learning about and, and concerned about. And uh, I was just going to ask, what can people expect for sea level rise? I mean, we were talking about that climate change changes, you know, over long time periods, but thanks to us humans, um, it's now changing at a rate uh, that is very rapid and that we can see within our lifetimes that we're already seeing. So right. what can people expect? I mean, you know, I, I live in South Florida. I lived in Manhattan before. Um, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of scary things happening in Miami um, and around the world. But what can we see in our lifetimes? What should people okay. be expecting? Um, you know, the way th if nothing changes. That's a great question, Chanel. Um, there's two sides to that question. You, you said at the end, if nothing changes. If nothing changes, uh, I think it's probably very likely that the seas will rise by a number of meters over the next hundred years or so. Um, but things will change. I mean, you know, they. I would say within 10 years, society is going to get its act together <laughs> and, and deal with this problem because the evidence is just overwhelming. Um, but the other question you asked is, is more of a scientific one, which is for different um, increases in CO2 in the atmosphere, what would you predict the rate and magnitude of sea level rise would be? And this is where scientists are actively working, especially in the polar regions. And, and this may segue into your uh, interest in exploration. The polar regions are, are, are vastly understudied. You know, we have one tiny little ice shelf around Antarctica that's heavily monitored and map, uh, mapped in, um, year to year. But, you know, we should be having ongoing monitoring all around Antarctica, all around Greenland. And, um, and this is where, you know, we're worried about the state of government research funding with the National Science Foundation. Um, but luckily, these are areas where there's global research efforts. But, um, you know, we need to be right there on the front lines of, of polar ice sheets and, and see where they're melting, why, what's happening, what are the processes, what are the physics of, of movement of ice sheets along their base, how do they melt, how do they break apart. Um, and, and so this is, you know, this is what we're all pushing for. With current forecasting, how much sea level rise do you think we're likely to see, you know, this century? I think if we continue to business as usual, I'm very comfortable with a number that's around a meter higher than today, possibly more on the east coast of the U.S. So that's in 80 years from now, so at the end of the century. Right. Wow. And, Significant. And, yeah. Imagine and, that. And Chanel, you said you, you know, you're living down there in Florida. I mean, the, the nuisance king tide flooding in Miami, you know, I think everybody notices it now, right? Right. The uh, octopus in the parking garage is the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. Climate change. <laughs> yeah. 
And, you know, so you see people, everyday people having to deal with this and actually worrying about real estate values and collapsing and, and stores that, you know, what they raise roads are now in basements and can't get right. because they're basement properties. And, uh, and yet you have, you know, at, at the higher levels of government, you know, kind of almost willful, um, you know, refusal to address this problem. Right. And the financial implications are just astounding. I mean, we're already seeing it. Yeah. Uh, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an incredible challenge for, uh, for all of us to, to face head on and well, first of all, acknowledge and, uh, and then tackle. I mean, it's inaction is the worst thing we can do here, but you know, that's, yeah. that's, that'll be for our political uh, podcast. Um, <laughs> So, Mo, I think you've alluded to it uh, quite strongly with your last answer, but what do you see with the uh, next five, ten years of exploration? Where are we going in the future? What needs to be done? Let's focus on climate. Well, for climate, scientific exploration, it really is the poles. We need to understand sheets, how they behave. Uh, you know, we just they're, they're just it's a very underexplored part of the planet. So what kind of what kind of scientists do we need to start training to send out there? Are we uh, creating uh, glaciologists? Are we doing uh, paleoclimatologists? Who do we need to tackle these problems? Yes, all of those glaciologists, absolutely. Uh, polar oceanographers, uh, yeah, coastal researchers, paleoclimatologists, all of above. Awesome. Well, there you go for our younger uh, listeners trying to figure out what to do in their undergrad. Yeah. Uh, you are needed. You are needed. Get into earth sciences. I went in there because the math wasn't so bad. So uh, it's, <laughs> in some respects, it was science light, light for me, which I loved. But uh, it gets you outside and gets you solving some of the most important problems facing Earth. I mean, talk about heroic efforts, right? If your research, yeah. like yours, Mo, has contributed to a greater global understanding of probably the most pressing issue for humanity, not just your local community or your next door neighbor or your mortgage payment. I mean, this is saving mankind. Um, this is pretty important research. So if you want to be a research hero, kids, get into the earth sciences. Don't delay. Fast track high school and go. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mo, thanks so much for, uh, for making time on Mother's Day, no less, to uh, join us on this podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure, uh, very educational for me, uh, and yeah, very grateful that you, uh, you made some time for us today. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, thank you so much, Mo. No problem. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. We are very grateful to have Dr. Maureen Ramo join us today and educate us on field exploration, science, and climate science in particular. If you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science, visit us at www.adventurescience.com. Or if you'd like to see our sister organization, Think Like a Mountain, check us out at thinklikeamountain.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the gracious support of our sponsors. We'd like to thank Merrill, Sunto, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats, Canada Satellite, Earthcast, and Smith Optics. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you in the outdoors.